Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, I'm David Payne, careers editor at Nature, and this is Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. In this seven-part series, Science Diversified, we're exploring how the scientific enterprise truly benefits when you have a team of researchers from a broad range of backgrounds, disciplines and skill sets. Each episode ends with a 10-minute sponsored slot from the International Science Council about its work on diversity. In this fourth episode, we turn our attention to sexual identity. We meet a gay chemist and a transgender sports scientist who are changing the world of science in their own unique ways. So hello, I'm Tom Welton and I'm Professor of Sustainable Chemistry at Imperial College London and I'm currently President of the Royal Society of Chemistry. A diversity of sexuality is undoubtedly a positive for science, just as all diversity is a a positive for science and it operates in two different kinds of ways. And so the, the first you can kind of think about the culture of the laboratory, the culture of science, where having people from different backgrounds with different interests gives different points of views. And so even in those areas of science which are seemingly the furthest away from humans and humanity, you know, just looking at that experiment with different eyes can sometimes uh, mean that you see something that somebody else doesn't. um, And that has a general positive effect that it's probably quite subtle. Um, You wouldn't necessarily be able to point it out and say, oh, that observation was made because that person was LGBT plus or whatever they were. Um, But it does have a general positive effect having a diversity of views. My name is Blair Hamilton. I am the lead researcher uh, on the Tavistock Transgender Athlete Study at the University of Brighton in Brighton in England. So a trans woman is um, someone who uh, was born male and transitions legally and socially to female, but obviously will still keep an XY chromosome. There's things that, during the transition, that a trans woman probably will never lose. For example, you know, stature, longer bones, that sort of thing. However, obviously testosterone suppression is obviously when a transgender female, so a trans woman, um, takes um, medication 
to chemically reduce their um, testosterone levels before they have surgery. So basically, it chemically reduces their testosterone to probably about castrate levels. I am a transgender athlete in football. Um, I grew up on the west coast of Scotland, just outside a place called Kilmarnock. I didn't exactly know, but I knew something was up from an early age, from about the age of four. Didn't understand it until, you know, I was maybe about 16, 17. That's when the, the feelings really clicked for me. And then I kind of, you know, cause of social things, and obviously um, west coast of Scotland is not exactly the most, you know, forgiving place. So I tended to kind of suppress those feelings and I suppressed those feelings up until 2017. And uh, 2017, on the 1st of, 1st of January 2017, I decided I couldn't not, could no longer, you know, put everyone else first, that uh, I had to put myself first. So that's when the medical transition started on the 26th of January that year. Yeah, so 20, 26 when that happened. And then um, I played I played football at quite a high level at that point. Um, I played with uh, the University of Aberdeen. Uh, played on their first team and their third team, which is odd because being a goalkeeper, you kind of moved about where you, you were needed. And uh, basically, at one point, it was in my last year, my fourth year of university, that I got the opportunity to switch codes after a year of, of my, my medication. And I then started playing with the Aberdeen University of Women's team, and then I started playing with Stonehaven Ladies. Moving on to Grampian Ladies, and then I now play with Montpellier Villa and University of Brighton. So I've been around. It's a, a little bit of a, a journey, but I'm happy where I am. So obviously, I take a testosterone um, suppressing um, injection once every three months, which again reduces my testosterone levels. But I'm also supplementing that with estrogen patches. The research is a unique collaboration between a gender identity clinic in London called the Tavistock Department Trust and obviously the University of Brighton. So what we are looking at is we are looking at um, testosterone suppression in obviously transgender women and the effects of their, trans their relative transitions on sport and performance. The common sense approach right now is that trans transgender women are thought to have an advantage due to going through male puberty and what we are trying to elucidate and actually try and highlight is does that really matter in terms of sport performance so for example you're looking at in terms of running times between elite male and female runners is 10 percent and in terms of does testosterone suppression in trans women you know with uh with um, estrogen administered as well does that bring that 10% down into cisgender female levels so we're basically trying to see whether a uh, advantage is retained or not the world rugby policy just to let people know has basically banned trans women from playing elite international rugby based on a hypothetical model and I don't believe that's, that should be the case. It should be on evidence. So that's what we're trying to do. So again, in terms of sports we're studying, we're looking at into case studies. We've got five trans women lined up for a rugby study and the same for football, the same for um, hockey as well. So we've got case studies going on as well. And then, of course, there are very specific ways. And 
One good example is the emergence of HIV and AIDS in the 1980s. The interest in there's something happening, the realisation that there's something happening, this is an important thing, and what was causing this dreadful disease was the discussions were very much led by gay men whom it affected directly. And of course, and at that time, uh, it would, less was known about actually uh, it can and does affect everybody. And those discussions of the science itself and people choosing to do research to discover what was causing this dreadful disease, but also the translation of that science as the knowledge started to come into the broader community was very much led by gay men who were using people like myself, I, I did this myself, who were using their knowledge of science and their understanding of how science works. And even though I was an inorganic chemist and not a biologist and certainly not a virologist, I was able to talk to people about what we knew and what we didn't know. What was a piece of scientific information? What was the difference between saying, we do not know that, it is not known, and saying that, you know, this was A or B, and so therefore your response to it should be C or D, and being able to explain that. And, and that activity was, was, as I say, very much led by gay men. And so it is a huge positive that those diversities of experience are brought to bear on these big problems. So one of the things which makes me very proud of the Royal Society of Chemistry community is, you know, the... The first time there was a planned election of its president, they elected a well-known out gay man. And in many ways, if you look back into, you know, back into when I was starting my career as a scientist in the 1980s, that would have been unimaginable. And so I'm hugely proud of the community for doing that. Now, of course, that does have some consequences. Um, and, you know, and, and presidents have their themes. And uh, one of the big discussions we had was about, you know, the theme of diversity, which we already had in place, very much led um, by Leslie Yellowlees when she was president. And it was sort, sort of realised that actually just by being me, then diversity remains a really, really important theme. It is a really important theme for the society anyway, and it would have carried on had I um, been a, you know, a heterosexual... You know, it was not going to go away, but having a president who comes from one of those backgrounds really does kind of keep the show on the road. And so it was kind of... We don't need to, in a way, make it a theme because it already is one. And it's one in which we are doing very well. And so the job is not inventing it. The job is sustaining it and making it move forward. And so that's kind of the way that I view um, uh, diversity within my presidency and my presidency within diversity.
So the reason why um, this all my work is important in, to sport is that sport should be inherently fair. Um, there is some unfairness um, inherent to sport. I mean, you, there's going to be athletes, for example, let's look at Usain Bolt for an example. There's going to be athletes that are racing against him that know they're not going to beat him, but they'll try their hardest. That's an, an, an inherent fairness, uh, unfairness in sport. However, we don't believe in sport there should be an advantage due to, obviously, you know, male physiology from like that's kept beyond their transition. Um, so we want to make sure that we're also being inclusive. We want to make sure that we are, you know, incorporating transgender athletes and and you know try to be fair at the same time. Again, we don't want to make sh- it's not inclusion, but being unfair. It's inclusion, but being fair to everyone as well. Now that's all for this section of our Working Scientist podcast. We now have a slot sponsored by the International Science Council, which looks at why diversity is so critical to advancing science and the steps we can take to improve it. I'm David Payne, careers editor at Nature. Thanks for listening. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When we think of diversity in science or in academia in general, even if there is no, just for the argument's sake, there is no measurable outcome, still I think it is our duty to make sure that this world is a safe, habitable place for everyone. No one should feel threatened. Welcome to this podcast series from the International Science Council, where we're exploring diversity in science. I'm Marnie Chesterton, and in this episode, we'll be looking at representation and visibility. We'll be hearing how important it is to be able to express the whole of your identity in a safe and welcoming environment, where you can see allies and other people who are like you. And we'll look at the role of organisations in fostering these spaces in science, including through explicit statements of support, which really can make a difference. We're starting by going to Antarctica. I can spend two or three months on a ship living amongst the icebergs, looking at what lives on the bottom of the sea. And one of the really exciting things is being able to discover new species. So probably about 10 to 20 percent of what we find is brand new to science. This is Dr Hugh Griffiths from the British Antarctic Survey. I work in mostly the polar regions. A marine biographer is someone who looks at where animals live and why they live there, so why they're distributed in some places and maybe not found in other places, for example. Hugh is also involved with the Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research, or SCAR, which is a thematic organisation of the International Science Council. So the Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research, or SCAR as it's called, which sounds like a Bond villains kind of name, actually has been sort of 
a huge part of my career. So early on, I was involved with scientific projects that were led by other people within SCAR. And today, I am the co-chair of one of the biology programmes within the organisation, but also I'm on all sorts of other committees and things as well. So for me, it's a brilliant way of networking with international colleagues. And because Antarctica is such a huge place where no one country could do all the research, you do need to connect up with other nationalities. And SCAR is that kind of ideal way of both meeting new friends and colleagues and for helping to get brand new collaborations that help answer some really big questions. According to Hugh, this need for collaboration within polar research means it's home to a very diverse community of scientists in all senses of the word. All sciences are covered in Antarctica. We've got engineering, we've got biology, we've got atmospheric sciences, we've got all these different things. And so it's a melting pot for different types of science as well as different types of people. And because it's so international, you've already got to deal with lots of different cultural backgrounds anyway. So it's not a huge step for us to move on to include things like sexuality, gender or um, disability, for example. Indeed, on the 18th of November, the International Day of LGBTQIA plus people in STEM, the polar research community got together for the first Polar Pride Day. We put out a load of things on social media and thought it'll be a few pretty pictures and people, you know, with rainbows and penguins and things. But actually, there were some really heartfelt comments in some of the things that came back to us, like people saying that the fact that we'd given out pins and badges to senior members of staff to wear that showed that they were allies meant that there were people staying within polar research because they finally found a place where they felt welcome and safe. Something as simple as a badge can go a long way to making people feel secure, that science workplaces or conferences are a safe space where they're welcomed and accepted. The importance of creating environments like this within science can't be overstated. Unless any, any person feels safe, feels welcome, how do we expect that we will get the best out of those people? So I think it is very important, whether it is a lab, it is any institute, it is any organisation, we need to make the place safe. And in this particular context, just making it a safe place is not enough because there are you know, lots of taboos that is associated with it. So that's why it is very important to explicitly mention that we don't care what sexuality, what gender expression you are, we are open to you. So this explicit statement is important in this context. That's Avijit Majumda, Associate Professor in the Department of Chemical Engineering at the Indian Institute of Technology in Bombay and part of the Global Young Academy, an affiliate member of the ISC. The purpose of uh, Global Young Academy is to make the voice of young academicians heard, both in terms of improving the quality of the life of the researchers, quality of science, as well as interaction between science and society. We look into how, as an young investigators, we can contribute towards the society. Within the GYA, Avijit is co-leading an initiative that works towards creating a safe space for people to discuss discrimination faced by LGBTQIA plus and other minority groups within academia. I was inducted to Global Young Academy in 2018. So in 2018, when we were inducted and then in the first 
AGM annual meeting, we found that there is no group or no incubator, no working group is there, which is kind of addressing this issue of gender expression and sexuality. Our first goal is just to let the new people, new members know that this is a safe place and they can express themselves. Their gender expression and their sexuality will not be judged, rather it will be embraced. We are trying to at least to make this mark in the Global Young Academy that, okay, it's a safe place. That has included adding new language to the Academy's public statements on diversity. The statement says that how Global Young Academy is open to all various different kind of race, colour, etc, etc, gender, etc. But however, the explicit mention of sexuality and gender expression, these were not present in that diversity statement. So then we kind of brought up this topic and it was again very heartily accepted and then now it is part of our diversity statement. Statements on diversity by international organisations such as the ISC and the GYA have an important role to play in showing support, breaking down barriers and ultimately sowing the seeds for change. They need to increase the awareness, first of all, but also to get actively involved with the national academies and to ask them, get them into the discussion table and uh, I mean, whether the government will follow that or not, that is obviously a very different question. But at least if the National Science Academies, they put pressure on their respective government to at least to start with, to at least legalize the gender expression and various forms of sexualities. I think that will be a great start. Having an explicit statement on openness and diversity can be a useful starting point. One of the five key missions of the ISC is to defend the free and responsible practice of science. This principle is reflected in all of the ISC's policies and operational guidelines, and they have a dedicated committee to oversee this. Commitments like this are particularly important for scientists who need to travel and collaborate in different settings, which may be less accessible than their usual places of work, or even unsafe. Sometimes you just need some guidelines and help from people who've been through these experiences or who are disadvantaged to help set up different ways of working. For example, the new ways of working in the pandemic have really helped us to show that disabled people can attend conferences or work remotely on fieldwork and things because we've had to set up different ways of communicating and we should bring them forward with us even when hopefully coronavirus is long behind us to show that we can actually change the way we work so that we don't stop doing things in countries where it may be illegal to be gay, but that we allow people to attend or participate in events there where they feel safe, whether it's through safe spaces or actually just remote attendance, for example. But it is hugely impactful on people's careers. That is something where if conference organisers and things are made aware, then that can all be fed into guidelines and make people within science a lot more comfortable. And even just knowing that somebody's thought about it even if the solution is not perfect, will make you feel as if you're part of a community where things are at least being considered and they're doing their best for you. For organisations like the ISC, the freedom to participate in science is something that needs to be reasserted continually in the face of barriers. 
And that also means recognising that people may experience different types of discrimination that intersect. It is really important that we recognise things like intersectionality or developing nations or countries where people don't have the same rights and freedoms as we do. And we learn from each other's experiences because I'm a cisgendered white male. So my experience as a gay man in science is very different to a black female LGBT person, for example. I don't have a whole bunch of other barriers. I have quite a bit of privilege. So although I can recognise where I may be disadvantaged, actually I can't speak for everybody in the community. Diversity and inclusion is about making science accessible for each and every person. And by doing that, all of science stands to gain. It's very important that we open the doors to everybody to have a voice. And if those voices are heard, then it'll be better for everybody. If you make a nicer working environment or a more friendly place to be, everybody benefits. So it's not a pie where if I have my slice, you'll get a smaller slice. It's something where if I'm happier, then other people don't have to put up with me being miserable. So it's a win-win. The ISC's Committee for Freedom and Responsibility in Science is currently re-examining and re-articulating what scientific freedom and responsibility means for the 21st century, including when it comes to equal access to the scientific endeavour and its benefits for all. More information about this work and about the ISC members and networks mentioned in this podcast is available online at council.science. Next week, we'll be talking to two early career researchers about the importance of democratising knowledge and access to tools, data and infrastructure, and how, as well as securing basic human dignity, it can also support different routes into science for people from diverse backgrounds. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.